Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 28th, 2017, and this is episode 2053 of the Survival Podcast. This is the Listener Council or Expert Council Show of the Week. Listener Council, Expert Council Show of the Week. This is where you, the listeners, write in and tell me questions you have for our Expert Council members. And I have a, a straight up front kind of a special announcement to make. Um, I, I started kind of looking around for a law enforcement officer to join us on the Expert Council. I had actually quite a few really qualified people apply. And I had to think really hard about who to pick. And I actually punted it. I, I kind of punted it mentally and just didn't make a decision. And I had about three guys I was kind of deciding between. And I was always leaning toward the guy that was a cop and had retired And the reason I was leaning that direction is because I believe that person is more free to speak their mind today than the other two who are still actively serving, though I think they would are, are great guys. And um, I kind of mentally punted that, and then I heard from the guy that I was leaning toward, hey, are you still doing this? Are you still interested? And uh, I said, you know what, get me a bio. It was like a sign that like that was the way to go. And I'm not going to announce formally who that is today because I haven't gotten them added to the Expert Council, Meet the Expert Council page yet. But Monday I'll be telling you who that is and sending out a call for questions on legal matters and opinions for this person, which I think will be great. And uh, if you're listening, you know who you are, and we'll give you your formal introduction to the audience. The reason I brought that up, though, is if you want to ask a question for a show like this, the best thing to do is go to the survivalpodcast.com and you can look at the, the tab that says About. If you hover on that tab and you scroll down, you'll see the third option is Meet the Expert Council. That'll let you see all of the Expert Council members and the things that they have to cover. Right now, I actually have a pretty big backlog. Uh, I had to send out an email to the council. They say, hey, guys, look, if you don't hear your answer on today's show, it's not because there's anything wrong with it or I didn't get it. It's because I got more material than I can use. Usually I'm, like, scraping by, like, Thursday evening, like, gee, I hope I have enough because some of those guys are pikers on getting their answers back. But that's because they have a lot going on in their lives. I got, like, a deluge of responses in the last two weeks. So um, right now I do have a little bit of a backlog, but we'll work that off really quick. And the fact that I have a backlog means I probably have a – Uh, an insufficiency of questions out to be responded to. So get your expert counsel questions in. Remember, TSPC expert in the subject line. Send the email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And for best results, don't call in questions for the expert counsel. Email them in because that's where I'm looking for them. TSPC expert in the subject line. What are we going to hear about today? Well, I got some good stuff today from the expert counsel. Uh, Charles Sandville, the humble mechanic, we haven't heard from him in a while, will be weighing in on restoring a vehicle passed down in the family. Gary Collins will be talking about detoxifying after a vaccine, or really any time, honestly. I have thoughts on sh the shift debit card from Brandon Todd. That's a pretty old question, so I made sure it got into today. Uh, building sites with WordPress, learning code, things like that from Nicole Awesome Sauce. Actually, Nicole Sauce, but I call her Nicole Awesome Sauce. Reusing pickling brine from Erica Strauss. Reusing brine is something I've been known to do. 
Uh, so I'm like interested to hear what Erica will say about that. Dealing with a surplus from the garden from Keith Snow, and I have a, 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 a the, the same answer will be coming from Erica in the future. So I have a few questions right now that are out to multiple council members. I think it'll be interesting to get different takes on them. Uh, then uh, uh, the coming Bitcoin fork. Um, Brandon Todd I have on that, and I, I worked in Brandon twice this week because this is time-sensitive, and it's going to happen in the next few days, right? So August 1st is when this whole Bitcoin thing plays out, and I have some thoughts on that as well. So I worked that in. And then I have a, a segment at the end. It's not really a question that was asked, but I, I see it now, okay? How we get from where we are to the government taking over health care in full, possibly full-on single-payer. I, I see the path to it now. Um, I've seen it for a long time, like all the way back to 2009, uh, before the health care bill that they passed was even on the table. But now I see what the likely pathway is. There's two likely pathways to this and how you get it under Donald Trump, which people thought I was crazy for saying you would end up with But I'll explain to you exactly how that works now at the end of today's show. Before we get into all that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Guys, you know, prepping involves evaluating your primary survival needs of food, water, shelter, security, and energy, and then shoring them up. That's really the most simple way to understand it in a nutshell. In that effort, ready-made resources is the go-to place to get that done. Everything, and I do mean everything for your prepping needs. Ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. Hey guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons, but there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. And with that knocked out, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. We haven't had this segment for a while because I've kept checking the year 32, and neither Ben nor uh, David have actually updated the year 32. And I thought, you know what, to cover my bases and be thorough, I'm going to check and see if anybody's done with the, anything with the year 33. So we have a hole in the, uh, the historical narrative, but for the year 33 AD, I do have... Um, a segment from David Byrne. Problems finding an heir. Agrippa, Agrippa uh, sorry, I always say Agrippa, it's Agrippina. Agrippina, the widow of Germanicus, will die in prison this year, starving herself to death. Her son Drusus will be intentionally starved to death. Tiberius is left in a tight spot because he is still ne he still needed someone to succeed him, but he has killed most of his family. There were still four Germanicus children alive, three daughters who were married off on Tiberius' orders, and a 19-year-old son, Gaius Julius Caesar, whose nickname was Caligula. Caligula was invited to live with Tiberius in 31 AD and managed to survive by hiding any resentment and acting as a loyal servant to the emperor. Caligula, which translates to little soldier's boot, received his nickname from a small uniform he wore while traveling with his father to military camps. He was quite popular with the soldiers, and many hoped he would eventually end Tiberius, his grandfather's reign of terror, and bring the empire onto a better path. However, I think it's safe to say that Caligula was deeply traumatized by having to live with and pretend to not resent his grandfather, who had killed his mother 
two brothers, two older brothers, and possibly his father. And I'm sure in the future we'll hear about the reign of Caligula. And in the words of many a scholar, he was freaking nuts. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that, man, because I don't think there's much else to say. Uh, but yeah, yeah, this is going to be an interesting saga that is ancient Rome as we continue to travel through history. And remember, we study history in the words of many people. They say we study history so we can learn from the mistakes of the past, so we don't repeat them in the future. What Jack has told you long before we had a history segment, the real reason to study history isn't to avoid the, the mistakes of the past. It's because they will be repeated. Some dumbass someday will do everything that's ever been done in the past again, even though it didn't work. And by studying history, you'll know what's coming and how to deal with it. That's my thoughts by Jack Spierko. All right, folks, I want to remind you one more time about the Members Support Brigade. That's the way you can help support this show by becoming a member of our MSB. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. But I want to give you six of the more than 60 discounts we get today. All of these pertain to growing your own food. Marsh Creek Farmstead can give you discounts on the Irapan and Comfrey Cuttings. Bob Wells Nursery gives you 10% off all of their offerings, bushes, trees, shrubs, and vines that grow food in your own backyard. And then we have four great seed companies that all do really great discounts for you. NE Seeds, Terroir Seeds, The Victory Seed Company, and High Mowing Seeds. If you take advantage of those with your homesteading activities throughout the year, those alone will probably pay for your membership. And hey, you know what? There's still over 60 more companies offering discounts on things you're probably buying anyway. So get by the survivalpodcast.com today, click on members to learn more and sign up. And if you've let your membership last lapse, remember now would be a great time to come on back to the Survival Podcast MSB. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, main questions we have for expert council members today. First question up is for the humble mechanic, Charles Sandville, on restoring a vehicle passed down to family, in this case, a Jeep. Charles, take it away, bro. What's up, TSP? Hey, it's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com taking your car-related questions. This one comes in from Derek, and Derek has inherited a 1979 Jeep CJ7 that's been garaged for the last five years, and it has some odd modifications to it. What old Jeep doesn't at this point? It currently doesn't run, but Derek would like to keep it and learn the basics of car maintenance and restoration. So the background of this Jeep is pretty cool. His great uncle bought it in 1979, new from the dealer. It's got a straight six, power steering, manual brakes, full-time four-wheel drive, less than 20,000 original miles, which is cool, and almost no rust. Over the years, it's been passed from my great uncle to my father, then my mother. It's a family heirloom at this point, and I have many fond memories of it. Going camping, hiking, and to our family's cabin in upstate New York. Heck, I even learned to drive in it. I really want to keep this vehicle for weekend, occasional driving, camping, and because it's all I have left of my family at this point, I'd love for my son to learn to drive in it someday. How cool is that. So the Jeep, of course, does have a few issues. His dad didn't believe in modern emissions regulations, so he removed most of that. So it does have some interesting modifications under the hood. Some of the control knobs on the inside are missing. All four white wall tires are flat and don't appear to be holding air. The spare tire was side-mounted so a rear wooden cargo box could be added. That box is now falling apart. Should I rebuild it or try to restore the spare tire to the rear? It's in a garage in upstate New York and I need to get it hauled to my garage in PA. I'm an IT architect slash engineer who used to build a lot of sets for theaters. That's pretty cool. 
So I'm competent with tools and woodworking, but I have no experience with cars. I've changed the oil a few times, and that's about it. Is this car worth restoring, or am I letting my sentimentality get in the way? Any insight or advice would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, Derek. So, Derek, um, we have a choice to make, right, before we move forward. To me, if this car were not the sentimental family heirloom that it is, I probably wouldn't invest a whole lot of money. I'd probably do what I had to do to get it running and then just beat the crap out of it out on the four-wheel trail. But because this is such a huge part of the family, think about if this were a firearm and we we had this really great family story around it. We wouldn't even consider getting rid of it. We would We would keep it. We probably would keep it in the condition that it was in. But because this is a vehicle, a giant, you know, paperweight, in our garage doesn't do us much good. So let's move forward with the mentality that we are going to get this thing running again. First thing we need to decide is what do we want this to be in a perfect world? It's a 1979. It's not going to ever have the modern amenities that, you know, our 2017 cars have. Gosh, cars almost 40 years old. So it is old school. Plus it's a Jeep, which back then, they didn't have features anyway. I'm kind of surprised it has power steering. A couple of things we want to decide first before we get into how to get going is how much money do we have to put to this? Let's pick a number. Let's pick $5,000, okay? Just, just to throw a number out there. Way more money than the car's probably worth to the average Joe, but because this is a family heirloom, it's worth it to us. Now, whatever you think it's going to cost you to get this bad Jeep rolling again, uh, you probably just about want to double it because that seems to really be how restorations and project cars go. And since you don't know really what it's going to take, let's air high and then work down from there. But let's just use the number of $5,000 for the sake of this question. And two final things. One, don't plan on driving this car as a daily driver anytime soon. I've seen so many people buy a project car and think that, they're going to work on it on the weekends and then drive it to work on Monday. That's a bad, bad move. You're always going to be held up by something, broken parts, ordering parts, not having something available, uh, not having the right tools to make a certain repair. So do not plan on driving this. The other thing you really want to focus on, and it's something that I'm a mix of good and bad about, is documenting this process. Okay, this is so important to you, your family, your son's going to get it one day if all things go well. How cool would it be to have this entire process documented? You know, if if you're like me, you're going to make videos about it. If it's simply taking pictures as you go through and as you find cool things, writing down, you know, in a journal about it. I know it kind of sounds dorky, um, and, and whether you share it with the world or not is really up to you. But really, man, don't get too far ahead and forget to document the process because even if you never get to the end, documenting the process is really going to be a cool, cool thing to have to go along with the Jeep. If you sell it, you know, if you finish it and sell it, then of course you'll have that as well. And that, that brings not so much financial value, but it brings a different level of value to, to the project. And I would say, depending on how old your son is, if he's older than about two, 
um, get them out there and get them helping you. I have a daughter that's just over two, and uh, once we get the engine part done of my build, she's going to be out there helping me quite a bit more once it's a little bit safer and we're not dealing with big, heavy things. All right, so what do we do with this giant project Jeep? First thing, man, you got to get it out of upstate New York. Get it to your house. Get it in a place that you have the space and the comfort level to work on it. Let's face it, working in your driveway when there's a foot of snow on the ground is awful. Working in your garage with little ventilation when it's 95 out is awful. So let's try and get it in the best environment that we possibly can to make it fun and make it comfortable to work on. Next, it's time to get the gloves and start cleaning. Before I did really anything, I would spend a lot of time cleaning this vehicle. And I don't mean washing and waxing it to get the paint pretty. I mean digging deep, cleaning mud, cleaning rust, leaves, debris, all that stuff, spider webs, critters, mice, who knows, you know, what you're going to find. So again, make sure you wear gloves and get it as clean as you can. And we're doing this for two reasons. One, we're doing it so that it's a little bit cleaner to work on. And two, we're going to use this opportunity to evaluate the vehicle. We're going to be looking for broken wires, broken hoses, rust, all that kind of stuff that can probably point you to the exact reason why this car won't start. So spend a couple of days, you know, get some degreaser, get some carpet cleaner. Heck, I'd pull the carpet out if it even has it. It's a Jeep, right? Who cares? Pull the carpet out and spend a lot of time cleaning and evaluating what's going on. Rust typically forms where water collects along the windshield, along the strut towers, in the quarter panels. Every vehicle sort of has its spots that it gets rust. So you want to make sure you find and identify these spots of rust. What you can do is you can get like a wax crayon and just mark on the paint where you have rust, surface, or otherwise. This is also another good place to take pictures and document what you find as far as any kind of really major things. Get your head up underneath the dash, look for broken wires, broken connectors. Hopefully you don't find any critters hiding out uh, up underneath your dash or under the hood. When it comes to under the hood, look for oil leaks, look for coolant leaks. Make sure that if you find something, you don't necessarily need to fix it right away. But maybe take some masking tape and masking tape around it, something bright colored like bright yellow or green uh, or blue masking tape so that you identify the location of that and you don't think, oh, I knew there was something wrong somewhere, but I can't remember. Now you at least have it identified. Again, document this process. Now it's time to make some lists. We want to list out all of the bad things that we found while we were doing this cleaning process. List it out in groups. So I would do a body group. I would do an engine group, I would do an interior group, and I would do a chassis group to include suspension and brakes like that. So if you find a, a brake fluid leak, right rear caliper, well, right rear wheel cylinder uh, is leaking brake fluid. All four tires are flat. Interior, we're missing knobs, the carpet's ripped, the seat belt's frayed, that kind of stuff. Make these lists as thorough as you possibly can. When it comes to the engine, we're going to do this a little bit different because we have a car that won't start. So we need to find out a couple of really important things before we jump all the way in and do a bunch of work on this car just to find out that maybe we have a seized engine. We need to evaluate how it doesn't start. Does it crank? Which means when you put the key in and turn it to the start position, does it go run, 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 like it would if it were going to start? If it does that, we're in a lot better shape 
then if you put the key in, turn it, and nothing happens. We still could be dealing with an electrical issue, but we need to make sure the engine isn't seized. So if you put the key in and rotate the key to the start position and it does not crank, the starter does not engage, we need to bust the hand tools out and try and rotate the engine by hand clockwise, right? Always clockwise, except like one or two weird squirrely engines. But since we're not talking about that, we'll leave that aside clockwise. So tighten, right? Righty tighty. I guess clockwise is probably a bit of an outdated term since everything is digital now. If you can rotate it around by hand, we're at least in a better position than if you can't. If you put a, a breaker bar or something on the crank pulley and you can't move it, you know, don't use a ratchet that's four inches long. Use, use a big ratchet. If you can't move it, we got big problems. And then now we need to really evaluate what our budget is because it's probably going to cost us some engine work. If it cranks and just doesn't start, just put cranks, no start, and we can move on with our list of problems that we found under the hood. So, you know, oil leaks, coolant leaks, that kind of stuff. List out everything. Next comes a part that I love. It is the research and shopping part. Now, we're not going to buy anything yet. We're just going to research these things that we have listed that are wrong with our car. So if we have work that needs to be done on the brakes, how much do brake parts cost? If we have suspension work, how much do suspension parts cost? Spend some time, get comfortable with different websites. You know, we're working on a Jeep, so Summit, Jegs, all those really normal uh, American car part companies are, uh, are great to work with. I come from sort of a European car world, so they don't really apply quite the same as they do to what you're working on. This is also going to give you an opportunity to learn about some of the really common things that are wrong with the Jeep. So maybe you find a leaking shock. Well, maybe, you know, there's a whole suspension kit that you can put on for less than replacing just one shock. Get familiar with these sites, do your shopping, add to your list the parts cost of what it's going to take to fix these problems that we documented. It's amazing what you'll end up learning about vehicles in general and your specific car by doing this. And again, I love this part. This part is so fun to me. Uh, there's a lot of really great information out there. There's some bad information out there too. But because we're shopping and we're learning, there's no mistake to be made. We take that information in and we evaluate it. If we're getting mixed information and you're not sure, put that one to the side and just move on to the next one. You have plenty of research to do in this vehicle. So now we should have an idea of at least what it's gonna cost us in parts. I wouldn't worry about labor because for the first crack at all of these repairs, you're gonna be doing them yourself. That's the whole point of this, right? Learn and restore this vehicle for your family. Next, we probably do need to figure out why the engine doesn't start. I already talked a little bit about crank versus not crank. You know, is the starter actually engaging? My guess is that since it sat for about five years, you probably have at minimum some fuel problems in the carburetor, perhaps in the tank. So you're going to look up on YouTube how to clean a straight six AMC engine carburetor. And there's going to be a video there and it's going to walk you right through how to do it. Cleaning carburetors are not hard. If you don't have to disassemble it fully, I recommend that way. You are going to want to get that old fuel out and, and dispose of it. Heck, you could probably a little bit at a time put it in your car that you drive daily and it'll be okay. I wouldn't fill it with that, uh, <laughs> that old fuel, but you can probably put in a little bit at a time and be just fine. Maybe not. It really depends on what kind of car you're putting it in, but let's get some good fresh fuel in it. 
I would probably also change the oil in it as well. There's going to be sediment at the bottom that's settled. So even though it's going to take forever to drain the oil out, go ahead and do an oil change on it as well. And let's get some fresh, clean oil in it. You may also have to undo some of these modifications, you know, without seeing it, without knowing what it was originally versus what it is now. It's going to be really hard to say, this one's fine, leave it. You need to get this taken care of. Look around and try and find a factory, the keyword being factory repair manual. The Hanes and the Chilt manuals, they're okay, but you really want to deal with what this Jeep had from a factory manual standpoint. So Amazon has them. They're out there, I assume anyway. You're probably going to be able to get an actual book with these. You really do want to have that, not only for this process, but for the rest of the restoration as well. All right, so now that we have it running, uh, you're not going to be driving it because the tires are flat. It's time to go through some of the other stuff. Let's do fluid changes on everything. Transmission, transfer case, both diffs, brake fluid, coolant. Uh, let's get all fresh juices in this thing. The car's been sitting for a long time. A lot of these fluids are the unknown service interval. So let's get fresh juice in every system that we can replace. Next, we're going to buy tires. Um, depending on the usage, it'll depend on what kind of tires you're going to buy. If it were me, I would probably buy the absolute cheapest tires I could possibly find. Maybe even used tires like on Craigslist or a used tire store nearby. You're not going to be driving this every day for a while until we make sure everything is straight. So don't spend a lot of money on tires right away. Just get tires on it so you can drive it. We're going to need to do more evaluation. We're going to need to evaluate the transmission. Make sure the all-wheel drive systems are working properly. The suspension, the brakes. So I don't want to spend, you know, $700 on tires when we need that $700 to make other repairs to the vehicle. After that, you know, you, you sort of decide what's most important to you. I like to do them in groups, just like we made our lists. So I'd focus under the hood. When that was good, right, when I was happy there, I'll move to safety systems. So brakes, suspension, steering, all that stuff, that's got to be in good working order. After that's done, now maybe it's time to move into the interior, look at our, our knobs that are broken and what we need to do to fix that. Does the heat work? All the electronics, uh, what little there will be in the dash, our lighting, make sure all that stuff works. And then we can, after that, move on to the cosmetic stuff. That's just how I like to do it. Safety systems are irrelevant if the car doesn't drive, so I like to get it driving first. Derek, I know that's a lot of information thrown at you, and there's a billion different ways that you could go with this restoration. I mean, you could go all the way to frame off, new engine, all in. Probably not the direction I would go. I would still want it to have some of that soul that it had back when my great uncle bought it in 1979 at the dealership. So um, this is really cool, man. Make sure, again, document it. And hey, if you do document this stuff, send, uh, send how you're documenting it my way. I'd love to follow it and share it with my audience as well. This kind of stuff is really cool. As far as Jeep-specific advice goes, I have a friend named Matt that runs a YouTube channel called Bleepin' Jeep, which you will be saying a lot, I'm sure. Uh, he's a hilarious dude and makes great videos, all Jeep-based, Jeep obviously. So check his channel out. He'll be able to give you some great advice uh, in his videos. He's got a ton of videos. Odds are he's hit these topics way deeper than I could and a lot more specific to the car you're working on. So check him out again, Bleepin' Jeep is his YouTube channel, bleepinjeep.com is his website, pretty easy to remember. So Derek, I hope that helps. Good luck, man. 
TSP, Jack, thank you guys so much for letting me do these questions. It's a ton of fun. If you want to see more of my stuff, my videos and whatnot, head over to HumbleMechanic.com. You can also follow me on all the normal social platforms. Just search Humble Mechanic and you'll probably find me. Guys, thanks so much. Have an awesome weekend, and I'll talk to you again soon. Great stuff from Charles. Now let's uh, hear from Gary Collins on kind of a touchy issue, detoxing after vaccines. And I think that Gary's advice is really good about detoxification uh, for any instance and living a life that is naturally detoxifying on a daily basis. Gary, take it away. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of PrimalPowerMethod.com where I answer all your health and wellness questions relating to primal lifestyle, paleo diet, and also living off the grid and life simplification. Now today, very, very interesting question dealing with immunizations and the possibility of detoxifying uh, a five-year-old kid in order because of the things that are contained in a lot of immunizations, primarily, primarily aluminum. Now, that are, I want to break this down, make it very simple. And I want to talk about macronutrients and just real general. Think of protein and fat as your muscle maintenance and energy. Your fruits and vegetables are your antioxidants detoxifiers. That's an easy way to look at it. And also by consuming enough water will naturally cleanse your body. Just to make it real, real basic. So we don't get wrapped around the axle too far and too far out in the weeds. Um, now, with a five-year-old, this gets really tricky. Now, by eating a healthy diet, you are naturally detoxifying your body anyway. And that's where things get a little confusing in the natural health world, is you see a lot of cleanses and detoxifying. Also, you know going through chelation, which is using certain things that will bind to metals in the body and remove them. You know, and aluminum's been linked to, you know, uh, Down syndrome and Alzheimer's. So it gets, it, you know, it's a controversial topic. Now, what you do not want to do is go to the extreme. And what I mean by that is don't go to a naturopath or someone who is going to put your son through chelation therapy. Very dangerous. It could drop the metals in your body to a very low, dangerous level, which you're going to be removing magnesium, uh, iron, copper, uh, you know, and those are essential in zinc. I mean, those are crucial for proper body function. So you got to be really careful. So I would recommend making sure he stays well hydrated with clean water, not tap water out of your municipal water tap. Uh, you, you bought the Berkey, great, great start. And also, you know, make sure he's eating enough dark berries such as blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, cranberries, if you can get him to take them. Uh, your, your vegetables that are great for removing is, especially one is chlorella. Taste awful. <laughs> it's exactly what it sounds like. So, uh, good luck on that one. But the dark vegetables you can get them are such as kale, spinach, basil, uh, cilantro, uh, rosemary is a great herb. Um, there's so many things. Just a dark leafy vegetable will automatically help bind to the overabundance of metals that may be in his body. Now, 
two things that if you get exposed, like when I had all my amalgam fillings removed, I was afraid of possible, you know, mercury poisoning. Even though I went to a very, very good dentist, she did all the proper practices. You never know. So I ended up for a week, I took bentonite clay and chlorophyll. I didn't take massive doses. I took each one once a day. All right, bentonite clay. It is exactly what it says. It's bentonite clay. It tastes like clay. I would say it tastes like dirt, but the last time I ate dirt, it was a lot better than bentonite clay. (laughs) So now that's what I mean. If you can get your kid to take these things in low doses, maybe add, you know, a half teaspoon of chlorophyll into some sort of smoothie that you make from fruit and maybe some dark greens in there. Um, the bentonite clay, maybe sprinkle it in. You're not going to get him to chug it down like I did, mix it in water and just pound it. It's not going to happen. So those are some things you can do, uh, pretty straightforward. And also remember, like I was saying, our bodies are detoxifying naturally all the time when we eat a proper diet. We're exposed to, uh, you know, heavy metals and toxins and poisons in nature. I mean, without us in, you know, doing anything. So our bodies are naturally geared to rid of the things that are harmful. Now you just don't want to, like I said, take it to the, the, to the extreme. So again, I hope that helps. And also guys, uh, I, I get a lot of questions on this. I have a total health package for men and women that actually has all the supplements and everything in it to naturally cleanse and detoxify your body safely. It's what I created by using them with clients, but I started by combining them with myself several years ago. So, and I know Jack's used them, so I know he'll support it. But everyone, I hope that helps. Very interesting and a little bit of a complicated question when you're dealing with children and immunizations. Again, if you have any questions, hit the comment section. All right, great stuff there from um, Gary Collins. And I, I agree, like living with the right diet and all is, is really to me, mostly the detoxing that America needs. It, I remember an article one time and it was actually bashing alternative, uh, medicine, but it, it said, uh, well, just hold on a second. I want to, I want to think about this for a second, that term alternative medicine. So modern medicine tells us that things like eating a proper diet, relying on minerals and nutrients and macronutrients and vitamins and gentle therapies that uh, act, you know, that, that handle chronic conditions is alternative, but taking synthesized poisons uh, for the rest of your life is, is mainstream. Just interesting there. Anyway, this article was bashing alternative medicine, really, but it made a salient point, and that was detoxify by having a liver. And that's the reality. That our bodies are naturally detoxifiers. The, the problem comes when we keep heaping toxins onto them. And I, I'm not really going to dig into the whole immunization thing. I think there's definitely problems within the vaccine industry. I think we over-vaccinate our kids. But I don't think like every problem that ever happens to anybody is because they were vaccinated. And I don't think... I, I think there's basically extremism on both sides. And the truth here does lie somewhere in the middle... But we're not going to get there today, so let's move on to something completely different. I have a question now on the Shift debit card for Brandon Todd. Brandon, take it away. Hello, everyone. This is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com here to answer another question for the expert counsel. This question comes in for Tim, where Tim asks, 
I have a question for Brandon about using the shift debit card for Bitcoin transactions that claim to have no fees associated with small transactions, which I thought was the major problem with Bitcoin currently. Details. I was watching a video from Brock on blockchain.com. Uh, and the speaker mentioned a debit card that had no transaction fees associated with the use of Bitcoin. I was under the impression that the fees for using Bitcoin directly were in the three-plus dollar range at the moment, and that prevented small transactions. Uh, the card has a one-time fee of $10 uh, USD and no fees on transactions unless you use an ATM, which there is a $2.50 fee plus the fee for ATM itself, which, when applicable... How does this company absorb the, those costs and still operate? All right. Great, great question from Tim. So first off, let's talk about how this is possible. Actually, we'll get to that in a minute. You know what, Tim? You were right. Bitcoin does have probably the highest fees amongst any of the major cryptocurrencies today. This does make it infeasible right now for uh, for to use Bitcoin for small retail on-chain transactions at the moment. For instance, if you have a transaction fee of $3 or more, then obviously you can't absorb that or pass it on in the sale for items that cost under $100 or so. Um, you know, Percentage-wise, the fee would be unreasonable. This is a problem for small-scale retailers accepting Bitcoin as a direct payment today. This high-fee issue is also why many projects are moving to the Ethereum blockchain because, at the moment, Ethereum has much smaller transaction fees and much quicker block times than Bitcoin. Okay, so now let's talk about these debit cards. Uh, there are a number of companies offering such cards like BitPay, Coinbase, and WageCam, just to name a few. What all these companies have in common is that they have access or operate an exchange which has a big pool of both Bitcoin and dollars. So essentially what happens is that when you get one of these cards, you send a Bitcoin transaction to them, which you pay the, you know, you pay the fee for and it shows a balance on your card in dollars. Now what just happened is that you sent a Bitcoin transaction to Coinbase and they sold it at the current exchange rate on their exchange GDAX, G-D-A-X for dollars. They don't execute an on-chain Bitcoin transaction every time you use your card. So that's where some people get confused. You just have a balance with them in dollars now, which gets debited every time you use your card. Uh, you know, Brian Young explained uh, part of this uh, pretty good on episode 2005 if you want to go back and, and get a better understanding of how Coinbase works on the back end. So to sum it up, you know, you send a Coinbase, you send Coinbase a Bitcoin transaction of which you pay the fee just like any other transaction. Then they immediately sell it for dollars at the current price. After that, it works just like any other old Visa card. So, you know, I have one of these cards. I have a, I think I got a, yeah, I got a BitPay card. Um, I haven't used it a whole lot, but you know, I thought it'd be kind of nice to have it. And if I want to just quickly spend some Bitcoin, um, you know, I could do that. You can load it up pretty quickly, uh, depending on how how fast the blockchain is is working that day. Like I know that there's been times where the mempool has gotten really high in Bitcoin in the last few months, and you have to send a, a much higher fee or bump your fee up to get it to go through in the in the next half hour. But you know, generally speaking. You pay a higher fee or a lower fee based on the mempool, but you can get a transaction through in Bitcoin within a half hour that's confirmed. So, I mean, you can have your card loaded up in a half hour, however much Bitcoin you want, and then they sell it, you know, on the exchange, and then uh, it works just like any other Visa card. So, 
Um, yeah, I have used it from time to time. It's kind of cool to have one of those. Um, it's it's a great talking piece too if you want to talk to a merchant about Bitcoin. Um, so anyway, so that's basically it. Hopefully that answers your question. Uh, again, this is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com wishing you all a great day. Good stuff from Brandon. Next up, I have a question for Nicole Sauce on building a WordPress site and learning code and using drag-and-drop editors and hiring parts of it out and all good stuff like that when you're developing a site for your business. Nicole, take it away. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here taking an expert counsel question from David about building a WordPress site. He asks, what are your thoughts on learning code versus drag-and-drop page builder? parentheses, Beaver Builder, Visual Composer, etc., versus hiring a designer for basic structure. How would that change if you were running an informational site versus a web store? I'm in the initial stages of building out an informational slash business directory site. See here, firearmstraininghub.com. As a non-techie, I assume that learning to code will take a lot of time and hiring a designer slash developer will be expensive. I've got gone down what appears to be the middle path of using Beaver Builder. I'm totally open to having a designer tune up the site, but I would like to build it. So what are the pros or cons and limitations of drag-and-drop builders versus other alternatives? And what am I missing? Cheers, David. Well, David, the answer to your question is that nothing changes between building a storefront site versus an informational site. The biggest question you need to ask yourself is this. Do you want to build a website or do you want to build a business? In other words, is this a way to learn how to build websites or are you providing services to people, whether that service be linking them with information or selling your consulting or, or whatever else it could be? Because if what you are doing is providing a service, then why would you learn coding? I know, I know some coding is helpful, but you know, the people who are best at coding and know how to get this done have spent many years putting that together and they know how to, the ones who are best know how to link what a user wants, which is the non-engineering mind with what they can engineer. And that is an amazing skill set. So... If you can get that job done and the information and connections put together for just a little bit of money, you might want to consider that. So web development and coding, eh, boy, I've been down that road for a long time. And it's it sort of, it reminds me actually of working with Daimler-Benz engineers way, way, way back in the day when they were building the best Mercedes car ever, but they didn't put a cup holder in it. Because they didn't realize that, and it, this turned into a big joke at the company. It was like, yeah, we finally realized we need to add this cup holder because as it turns out, people driving the cars aren't just all about like the comfort of the seat and what's under the hood. They just want to put their coffee somewhere safe. So they're choosing cars that have some of these other amenities over that. And websites are a lot like that. The, the, you know, people can spend tons of money on a web developer and it's a huge waste of money. But if you have one that can drive your primary target audience towards coming to your site, finding something and taking action, whether that action is buying something or finding information or sharing information, 
then you've found somebody great to work with. And there are, it doesn't have to be expensive. I've, I've been to your site. I looked at your site. It looks like a very, fairly simple concept. Looks like a good concept, actually. And there's no reason that that should cost a mint. But the question is, who is your primary target and where are they going? Informational sites are not at all that different from a storefront. I mean, okay, the question must be begged. Why not monetize your informational resource? But if we put that aside, because perhaps that's your long-term plan, the difference is purely is in a purely informational sense that instead of collecting dollars, you're collecting views, shares, and citation. And that's pretty much the only way you can measure if your site is fulfilling its ultimate goal of linking people with information, or in this case, a firearms trainer or a firearms training course. And, you know, this looks like a cool idea. So my question to you is this, who are you wanting to reach And please don't say everyone or Americans who want to learn about guns or any big general categories. I I want to know, like, who are you really trying to reach? What's his or her names? And, I mean, is it the middle-aged father who wants to learn how to protect his family because he realizes that, well, they could be attacked and he's not ready to go? Or is it someone who is retired who's just just now really in, realizing that in a shit hits a fan situation, they are woefully ill-prepared to defend themselves. Or perhaps a 30-something single woman who was almost attacked and wasn't and realizes, oh, crap, maybe I should be more prepared. I, I don't know who you're trying to reach. So, I mean, it could even be the trainers themselves. Are you putting this this resource together and your primary most important person to reach with your site for it to be successful are the trainers so they post their courses on it so that people can find them. So that question is a really important question. I have been helping free market research organizations build their websites since 2004, and they face a similar problem where what they're quote-unquote selling is information and not necessarily asking for money for it. But what they need is for people to take it and do something with it. So the ones who do the best in that world orient their websites towards a, a, a good end user experience, and they build them so that people coming to their sites can easily find what they seek. So I guess in a nutshell, what I would say is this. If you have a little bit of money, And you can find a reasonable web developer to work with who you trust, who is honest, who's not going to screw you out of $70,000 for something that should not cost anywhere near that. Figure out your marketing strategy and work with them. Figure out the one primary person you're targeting, what you want them to experience. Talk it over with your web developer. They will bring up questions you haven't thought of and then work with them so that they can help you put together a great user experience. Work with somebody who who understands that it matters not one single iota how they or you wish the information were organized, but what matters the most is who is going to your site and can they find the information they seek. And I've been there, and you know what? I clicked, and I found information. So that's actually a very good sign. I didn't click like nine times. I clicked one time, found the information I needed. So kudos to you. Um, I guess from there, what I'm looking for would be a more uh, graphically appealing, inviting site that was had some language around it that might tell me 
who you're trying to reach with this and, and why I should be there. So that's pretty important. Also, how are people going to find your site? So once you get it built, cause I think your site's not all that expensive to build, to be honestly, if I were building your site, I don't know if you have other like crazy complex requests, but what I see there shouldn't cost very much to put together and it should be done in a way that can make it very graphically appealing. So then of course the next question is how are you going to get those people there and how are you going to get them using it? And then to what, to when are you doing that? Are you doing that so that you can sell your trainers on giving you a subscription fee for being listed on your site? Because of course my next step is how are you going to monetize this or is it really purely informational? So you know, put some thought to getting people there. Like what Google search terms are they going to use to go there? Is your site optimized for that? That sort of thing. And maybe even consider writing up a user story for your primary site visitor. I like to say there can be only one. And people want to slap me when I say that because they want there usually to be two, two or three. But if you find your one most important target and build it around that target, build a user story that explains like, you know, Franny, you know, Franny firearm wanting to use her person went out and was Googling this because she was looking for a course. And these are the terms she used and it brought up the site and then the site came up and she clicked here and she found that and she did that. You, you tell the story about the person. When you do that, that really helps you get a pretty good first prototype that you can test. And then once you've tested it, You'll get feedback from people. I mean, people are always willing to give feedback on websites and, and you end up with a pretty good product. And as for drag and drop versus learning code versus yikes, um, I am not anti drag and drop. I use a drag and drop builder all the time, but I use it after I've figured out what I want the user to experience. Because if I'm just dragging and dropping things anywhere, then it's not the best experience for my end users. So, a developer could be expensive, but I don't think they will on yours. And if your goal is to have a calendar paired with a business listing for trainers, for, for firearm trainers that are all linked to a Google map so that the person can easily geolocate, dude, it's just, it shouldn't be that expensive. And if you're getting expensive bids on stuff like that, that ain't worth it because somebody's not treating you the way they should. It's clear that you've put some thought into your site on how the user experience should be. I mean, I can go there and I can find a class. This is good. Imagine how it could be with some great graphic design and a more user-driven experience. It could be like the difference between Starbucks beans you buy at Walmart and my freshly roasted beans. They're both good, but one is better than the other. Both serve a need, but one exceeds expectations. And today's web user expects not only a well-organized site, but a good-looking one. So, David, if you have the resources, see if you can work with a partner who is great at web stuff and design and so that you can focus on making your content relevant, useful, and awesome and getting more trainers on there and more classes. So I hope that helps you with this decision. Again, the, the first question to ask is, do you want to be a web developer or do you want to have an informational site? If you want to have an informational site and you have a little bit of a budget and can work with somebody, I'd definitely seek a partner on this one. 
Thank you, TSP, so much for your questions. And Jack, your community continues to inspire and incite change in my life. I love it. Anyway, for the expert counsel, this has been Nicole Sauce at livingfreeintennessee.com. And I hope you all go out and make it a great week. Great stuff from Nicole, which is what we've come to expect so quickly with uh, her responses. I, I want to reiterate on the coding thing. Here's here's what I think that people need to understand. Like when you say coding, there's uh, there, there's coding and then there's actual coding. So I think everyone over time, just through experience, should learn some basic HTML, so that when you're in WordPress and something's not working right. And you switch to that code view and look at that little area, you can kind of figure out what the heck's going on. And you can learn a lot about HTML coding in WordPress just by, well, do something. Type a, a, a word and then hyperlink one, or type oh, a sentence and hyperlink one word in that sentence and then switch to code view and look at it. And just see what it looks like. Don't get really intense about it. Don't start coding your own hard links and stuff like that. Just look at it. Make a bullet point list. Switch to the code view. Look at it. See what closes in the bullet list. How is it, how is it terminated? How is it started and how is it terminated? Because what's going to happen is sooner or later you're going to be doing something in any kind of a WYSIWYG editor, which is a what you see is what you get editor, which is how the back end of WordPress pretty much works. And something's going to be, you're going to get something jacked up, and you're not going to be able to fix it. But if you understand what's going on with that code, you'll, you can be, switch back there and go, oh, that needs to move here. I don't consider that coding. I, I see that kind of like the person that goes to Mexico that has a thousand-word Spanish vocabulary. They can get by. And they're not going to go out and have full, in-depth, intellectual conversations in Spanish, but when they have to pee, they can stay, Dani está el baño, right? Okay? Uh, you know, quiero una más cerveza, por favor, señorita. Right? They can they can ask for a beer. They can ask where the bathroom is. And if somebody's screaming something like "alto, alto, alto," they know that means friggin' stop. And if it's a cop with a gun, don't run, or you're gonna get shot. Like they have a basic fundamental understanding of you know the concept of the language, so that then we flip that back there, they can deal with stuff like that. As to learning coding. Unless you're going to be in the business of doing coding, don't waste your time. Graphic artist, unless you're going to be in the business of doing graphic arts, don't waste your time. Now, that doesn't, like, I like that I can grab an image and put some text on it. Or I can resize it or I can crop it and stuff like that. That's not graphic arts. Graphic arts is starting with raw files and building a graphic from nothing. Right? That takes a lot of time. And if you like it and you can make some money off doing it, then that's one thing. But if you're going to sit around and try to learn the entire concept of graphic art so you can build a header for your website, go focus on your service or your product and your business and pay somebody 50 bucks or 100 bucks or 1000 bucks, depending on how good they are and what you need, to develop that footer, that header, that basic framework for you and focus on your business. Because your business is – got to look at your website like an employee, right? An employee. So – if you needed an employee and you weren't that great at sales and you knew you didn't have time to be the outside salesperson for your business, 
And you hired that employee. You would look for someone that knows the sales process. You would give them a, a quota and some metrics, and you would judge them. And either they pass or they fail. And if they fail, you fire them and you get somebody else. And you let them go do their job. And you don't run around behind them trying to close the sale because that's what you hired them to do. And when you take your car to a mechanic and you say, I want you to fix this problem. I want you to put new, a new serpentine belt on it. You don't try to learn how to do it yourself unless you just want to do it yourself and you have time to mess around. Now, fixing your car, can you do that yourself? Sure. Is it a good thing? Sure. But if it's taking away from your business, the actual work of your business, and you're doing it with a company vehicle, you're not thinking as a business owner, if that makes sense. If, if, if it costs me $250 to get some work done on a truck that's for my company, and I do that work myself, and now I bought the part for... 15 bucks. So I've saved $235. But it took me time to do that. That could have been better spent if, even if I was going to make a little bit less in the business or the same money, I'm still behind because the progress of the business has been stymied and slowed down, and I will never get that time back. That, that's how you have to think about making these kind of command level decisions with your business. And I've seen people spend months building a website and never actually do anything with their business. And my big takeaway is a lot of times people use screwing around with the website as an excuse not to get to the business that the business is really all about. Just some thoughts, adding to what Nicole said. Uh, next, I have a question for Erica Strauss on reusing pickling brine. And God, I got to tell you guys, this was a big thing with me because I love pickled eggs, specifically the per we call them purple nurples that are made in pickled beet juice. And my grandmother wanted nothing to do with pickled pickled eggs, but she made pickled beets like nobody's business. And whenever that jar of pickled beets came up out of the cellar, when that last beet came out of that jar, I grabbed it, boiled up some eggs, and in they went. God, I wish I knew about quail eggs back then. Anyway, Erica, let's talk about reusing pickling brine. Hello, TSP. This is Erica Strauss from Northwest Edible and WEdible.com calling in this week to answer Dawn's question about the safety of reusing pickle brine. Dawn wrote me that she recently received a gift of home canned green beans, dilly beans, and after they were eaten, she wanted to use the pickling liquid. She didn't want to throw it out. So she blanched some cauliflower and filled the jar with the dilly bean brine back up with the cauliflower and really enjoyed this pickled cauliflower. So she wants to know, is there any reason not to reuse the pickling liquid from canned pickles, dilly beans, cucumbers, that kind of stuff? And she wants to know how many times she can reuse it if it's okay to do so. So Dawn, uh, the answer to your question, can you reuse the pickling brine is yes and no. Let's start with what you can't do first and why, and then we'll move on to the many, many things that you can do with leftover pickle brine. The first thing is that I want you to know is that you cannot reuse pickling brine to make canned pickles. So by this, I mean vegetables in brine processed in a water bath canner and kept in the pantry at room temperature. That is a big safety no-no. And here's why. A safe brine for pickling and canning has a certain salt and vinegar percentage that ensures that your pickled vegetable, whether it be cucumbers or green beans or beets, whatever, that it is properly acidulated to prevent the growth of bacteria, most notably Clostridium 
botulinum, which is, of course, the thing we really want to avoid in canning, causes botulism toxicity. When a vegetable is pickled, the vinegar and the salt act on the vegetable to draw out water from the cells of that vegetable. And because of osmosis through this osmotic action, the salt and the acid levels stabilize between the brine, the salty brine, and the vegetable being pickled. So in other words, the vegetables soak up some of the preservative salt and vinegar, and the brine gets diluted with the water that is in the cells of the vegetable. Now, this dilution isn't a problem when you can your vegetables because tested brines account for the dilution that occurs when the brine interacts with the vegetables, and tested brines are always strong enough that even after that dilution, a safe acidity is still assured. However, once the brine has been used to successfully pickle one batch of vegetables, it's no longer at that original salinity or acidity that allowed it to safely pickle the first batch. So if you attempt to can a second batch of pickles with reused brine, you could be setting yourself up for some really bad microbial growth that you just don't want. Now, here's what you can do. Make refrigerator pickles. Quick pickles, which is what it sounds like, Dawn, you probably made with your cauliflower, are just raw or lightly blanched vegetables seasoned with a soak in a flavorful brine in the fridge. They're called quick pickles because they're so fast to make. In some cases, quick pickles might soak in a brine for just an hour before they're ready to eat. In other cases, you would let them go for several days, maybe even a couple of weeks. You leave your fridge pickles in their brine until they taste nice and flavorful. Two or three days usually does the trick. And because these quick refrigerator pickles are not being sealed up in a jar or in a can at room temperature, the preservative quality of the brine and the acid and salt levels are a little less critical. So you can go ahead and make refrigerator pickles with your delicious reused brine. You know, even here, there are a few caveats. A dilute brine will not be as effective at preventing bacterial growth, even at cool fridge temperatures. And your fridge pickles with reused brine will probably not last as long as pickles made with a full strength brine. So just watch closely for signs of contamination, such as a murky brine, yeast or mold growth, scum on the surface of your brine, or pickles which get unpleasantly mushy. Now, in terms of how to make quick pickles with reused brine, you know, it's a subjective thing, but I did some research and there's a magazine called Cooks Illustrated, which tends to take a fairly scientific approach to testing various cooking techniques. They actually tested making quick pickles with cucumbers and reused brine in two different ways. The first method that they tested was just to slice fresh cucumber right into leftover pickle brine and then leave the slices in the brine refrigerated for 24 hours. The second method was to lightly toss those same type of cucumber slices with one and a half teaspoons of fine sea salt per pound of cucumbers to draw out excess water from the cucumbers. And then the Cook's Illustrated team allowed those salted cucumber slices to sit in a colander and drain for an hour. They then transferred those salted cucumber slices to a jar, brought their reused pickle brine up to a boil, and poured that brine over the cucumber slices. This batch was also kept in the fridge for 24 hours. So the results were far better with the second method where the cucumber slices were salted. Cooks Illustrated says that lightly pre-salting the vegetable and then boiling the brine when using the reused pickle brine results in quick pickles that are denser in texture, deeper in color, and have a really great bright flavor and are much better seasoned with garlic and dill from the brine compared to just dropping 
cucumber slices into that brine. Now, the results were far better with the second method, the pre-salted method. Cook's Illustrated says that lightly pre-salting the vegetable and boiling the brine resulted in pickles that were the right dense texture and deeper color compared to the first method and were more brightly flavored and more well-seasoned with the garlic and dill from the brine. So particularly with vegetables like cucumber, which are extra watery, looking at that pre-salting as a technique to get a better result with your reused pickly brine quick pickles might be something to think about. So Dawn asked how many times she can reuse her pickle brine. I really advise against the infinite pickle approach to pickle brine. With every round of vegetables that you cycle through, you're further diluting the salt and the acidity level of your brine. You're also further diluting the flavor. So every batch is going to get riskier in terms of bacterial growth and molds, etc. And every batch is going to get sort of less rewarding in terms of how it tastes. I think it's pretty safe and you're going to get good results if you reuse your brine for a batch of quick pickles once. So one round of reuse. You might be able to get away with twice, but this is going to depend a little bit on the moisture content of the vegetables you're quick pickling. It's going to depend on the starting salinity and acidity of your original brine and whether you pre-salt your vegetables as described by the Cook's Illustrated technique before reusing the brine. That's a lot of variables, so I really can't recommend using your brine for quick refrigerator pickles more than once. Luckily, there are a ton of ways to use pickle brine in the kitchen. If you think of pickle brine as a pre-seasoned vinegar substitute, you can probably come up with a zillion ways to use it in soups, braises, dips, dressings, even drinks. There's really no limit to the ways you can use leftover pickle brine in your kitchen. But in case you need a few ideas to get you started, I wrote a blog post, which is available on my website, nwedible.com, which lists probably two or three dozen different ways that you can specifically use pickle brine to kind of create more fun in your own home kitchen, including things like salads, salad dressings, um, even drinks. So there's a lot of different ways to use pickle brine beyond the refrigerator quick pickles. My recommendation is you do the first round of the refrigerator pickle, and from there on, you move into a culinary use. So Dawn, I hope this helps. I hope it clarifies when it is safe to use pickle brine and when it really isn't and helps you get some, um, you know, stretch the use of that delicious pickle brine just a little bit more. Guys, this has been Erica for the Expert Council. Come say hi anytime at Northwest Edible Life. That's www.nwedible.com. Find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash nwedible. And if you love what I do, I'm on Patreon, patreon.com slash nwedible. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Dawn, for your question. Keep them coming, guys, and I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. I completely agree on kind of the one reuse thing. And one of the things I would add to this is, you know, the main thing that makes this, we're not talking about lacto-fermentation here, right? We're talking about pickling with vinegar. And vinegar is, is the main, vinegar and salt are your main preservatives here. And a lot of times when you kind of use something out of the jar of something you've pickled, you, you lose some of the brine. And simply by topping up a little more white vinegar and adding a little salt, some of those concerns about enhancing the longevity of the preserving nature of it are mitigated. Um, but yeah, this is not stuff to leave out on the countertop, right? Or to reprocess in a water bath can or something like that. This is a quick pickle in a refrigerator. And man, I'm going to tell you guys, if you know, I don't pickle beets, 
but I'll buy them just to do quail eggs and pickled beet juice. Oh, my God. I Again, we call them purple nurples when I was a kid. I don't really know where that came from, but, man, I love me some purple nurples. Uh, I will tell you that they do have a rather gaseous uh, result, especially consumed in mass quantities with beer, as they are in bar rooms all over uh, the coal region of Pennsylvania, I'm sure other places as well. Now, on to other things food-related, Chef Keith Snow here is going to talk to us about um, <clears throat> dealing with an abundance of vegetables from the garden, where it's more than you can handle, and making something other than, ironically, chow chow, which is actually a pickled form of vegetable relish. Let's take, uh, let's go ahead and hear from Keith on that one. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and TastyEducation.com. Wanted to get with Dean about the garden surplus. Now, anybody that gardens, uh, you'll find out that even if you're a good succession planter, um, you're going to have times when there's an abundance of certain things. And this is a great thing to happen, but you know, I've seen it many times myself, usually with things like zucchini and squash, because um, they usually start out really strong in the summertime, and uh, you'll have tons and tons of them coming off, and eventually you'll miss one, and you'll find one that's, you know, a foot and a half long, and uh, they just produce prolifically. Same thing with uh, pepper plants and tomatoes, and after a while you can get overrun, which, um, you know, more food is better than less. And we all use different ways to use it up. We'll start cooking with it, you know, maybe we'll do some canning and preservation methods sometimes. As Dean pointed out, um, you know, maybe use recipes like chow chow or salsas or whatever it might be, soups. And then you give some away to neighbors. You send some over to, you know, your relatives. But you're still left with a lot of things to use up. And uh, our good buddy Dean here is getting a little frustrated doing the same things over and over. Um, and this is why I'm going to suggest a couple of recipes. Instead of just straight up other preservation methods, I mean, you certainly could use a dehydrator and uh, start dehydrating these things to use later on. Um, a great technique, and you mentioned, Dean, that you have some green beans coming is uh, lacto-fermentation. There's a couple of good books that I'd suggest. Go on to Amazon, look for books by um, Sandor Katz, I believe is his name. And uh, Wild Fermentation is a great book. has a lot of really terrific recipes, but you can use lacto-fermentation as a preservation method to um, preserve everything from you know the right type of cucumbers to beans. I mean, it uh, spans a gamut. That's why I'd recommend that book. There is some technique involved, but it's as simple as using um, salt water and natural bacteria to make fermented vegetables, which is a great thing to do. I do that all the time with um, peppers and um, onions and garlic. Uh, fermented garlic is a great thing. But let's talk about the zucchini and squash. Like you have some lemon squash and zucchini. And uh, these things, number one, if you're gardening these things, you generally don't want them. I mean, some people, oh, look how big this thing is. You know, you get this thing that's two feet long, a zucchini. I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's useless, but it's 90% um, seeds and, you know, it feels like a sponge inside. Now, when you do have those, because a lot of times they hide under those giant leaves, you can take those big ones and uh, just what I do is take the outside, you know, about half inch. So I'll cut all the way around, toss the middle into the compost pile, 
because nobody really, that's why people don't like zucchini and squash is that spongy texture when people let them go too big or don't cook them properly. The outside is always great. And one thing, um, it's actually a recipe in my cookbook, the Harvest Eating Cookbook, Dean, is a um, zucchini and tomato stir-fry. And I developed that recipe specifically to use um, zucchini that got too big. So I would cut around the inside, toss the inside, and I have a little dice, you know, some olive oil, some shallots and garlic, um, a couple of homegrown tomatoes that are diced up, <clears throat> and the zucchini, and you cook that um, for you know, 15 or 20 minutes until everything is well cooked. It makes a great little side dish. So that's one thing that you can do with um, the zucchini. Now, some other things. One of my favorite all-time recipes is taking um, usually yellow squash, or in your case, you've got those lemon squash. Those would work perfectly. But you slice them up into rounds, or it, the shape isn't um, too important, but you want them to be um, somewhat bite size. So in, in a skillet or something that's very wide, you can even grill them too, but I like to caramelize them in a skillet with a little bit of olive oil. And this produces really great color and texture. The secret is not having them sliced too thick and also not having too much oil in your pan. If you have <clears throat> too much oil, you'll wind up with something that's kind of steamed and not caramelized, but caramelized squash, uh, with garlic, olive oil, and pecorino romano cheese with pasta is something that is uh, remarkable. Now, pecorino romano, you want to look for a brand called Locatelli, L-O-C, Locatelli um, pecorino romano, and that's a sheep's milk cheese, and it's got a brown rind with white lettering. You can find it in most stores. Um, this dish is excellent with that pecorino romano freshly grated on top, so you've got those caramelized squash and they've got great color on them a little bit of garlic olive oil pasta and cheese super simple no tomato in this one that is a great thing to do now let's let's change um actually let's just stay with the squash for a minute they're great grilled so what i like to do is take the squash and so it's easier to do instead of cutting them in like you picture a you know six or eight inch zucchini and you want to try to pick these zucchini and squash when they're tender and young. I aim for under eight inches because those can be, the entire thing can be used and it hasn't developed a huge seed pocket in the middle yet. So try to get those younger ones um, picked, but you can take those and, and grill them, you know, over a, a charcoal grill with hardwood, or even a piece of oak on there and get some wonderful um, grilled, you know, squash. And this is great um, to make sandwiches out of. I mean, any type of um, wonderful bread with maybe some flavored cream cheese and a bunch of um, grilled squash is a heavenly thing. But let's uh, let's now change gears here to zucchini. I mean, excuse me, to um, cucumber because these get out of hand quite easily, and people are like, "What am I going to do with them?" So here's a couple of ideas: um, take your cucumbers, shave them thin on a mandolin into a bowl, and then toss them with a touch, maybe a half a teaspoon of sesame oil about one teaspoon of um, tamari or low-sodium soy sauce, and then seasoned rice wine vinegar, which you can find in any store, but make sure it says seasoned. You take those ingredients, toss them together. You can um, make a wonderful sort of sesame cucumber salad, which is very refreshing, serves as a great bed for a piece of grilled fish. That is an awesome thing to do. What about a cucumber salad? This is a dish that comes from my mother-in-law. Um, she used to make this in Germany growing up, and it's uh, sliced cucumbers with sliced onions and grape tomatoes. And what it 
is is just tossed with uh, salt, pepper, and a little bit of cider vinegar. There's really nothing else in it, but it does take time. You need to let it sit out and toss it every so often for at least an hour. And you have something that um, the sum is way better than the parts. It's amazing, that little salad. Also, um, I mentioned a sandwich. You can make a cucumber sandwich, which is delicious. And I have these quite frequently in the, in the uh, summertime. I'll take my um, cucumbers, peel them, slice them thinly. And usually I'll take a 24-hour fermented sourdough bread and put a little bit of uh, toast on it so it's uh, not soft. And then I'll usually take some type of a maybe a mascarpone cheese that I season up with some fresh parsley and garlic and salt and pepper, maybe a little um, pecorino romano in there too, and make sort of a cheesy spread, put that onto the toast, and then layer the cucumbers in there, um, and quite a bit of them. And that cucumber sandwich, you know, a little salt and pepper is amazing. So that's another thing that you can do. Uh, what about a ratatouille? And that is the famous um, dish that comes from the south of France where they have a very dry climate, a lot of sunshine and excellent soil. So things like eggplants, peppers, tomatoes, zucchini, all these things grow fabulous there. And uh, the ratatouille is a very famous, you know, French comfort food dish, and it is not hard to make. Um, in fact, um, I've got recipes all over harvesteating.com for it, but you can find one anywhere, and it's basically a slow-cooked stew of things like, you know, zucchini, um, eggplant, tomatoes, onions, garlic, bell peppers. It's a wonderful kind of melange of flavors, and you can take a big pot um, and I'll make it every summer. I'll go to farmer's market and get all those things because just like you, when you go to a farmer's market, somebody that's actually growing things, they have an abundance of those vegetables. They're usually very cheap. So if you're not growing them yourself and you can get them at a farmer's market, you can make a big batch of this ratatouille. It makes the best um, thing to layer inside of a lasagna. So you can make just a lasagna with vegetables and cheese um, using the ratatouille. Also great on a pizza. It's a perfect side dish, too. In the summertime, room temperature, though, with a little um, grating of cheese on it, it makes a great side dish with grilled steak. Any kind of steak, like London broil with a side of ratatouille, is amazing. Now, the other thing I would suggest is um, looking at one of the national dishes of Denmark. It's called schmierbrot. Basically, uh, it's a open-faced sandwich. Now, the bread is interesting. Um, in the supermarket, in the deli section, you can usually find this German bread. I think the brand is like Mestemacher. I can't pronounce it or I can't even remember, but it is a heavily seeded dark bread. Uh, usually comes pre-sliced and has a lot of cracked wheat in it. Obviously, it's not for paleo people or those that are watching gluten, um, but that bread is really great stuff. It's super dense. Um, it's got rye in it. I mean, it's it's neat stuff, and you can take that and, again, take maybe a goat cheese, salt and pepper, a little parsley, touch of olive oil, black pepper, whip that goat cheese up, spread it on your um, open-faced bread there, and then have at it with either grilled squash, sliced zucchini, tomatoes. I mean, just about anything is great on those open-faced sandwiches. Also, don't forget about ricotta cheese, which can be flavored up very simple, again, with a little bit of uh, minced garlic, uh, fresh basil, salt and pepper, a touch of olive oil. That makes it a great um, schmear for one of these open-faced sandwiches. You could put roasted cherry tomatoes on there. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And I hope, Dean, I've given you some ideas to use up that surplus. And uh, 
that's a good thing that you have all those vegetables. So thanks so much for listening, folks. Do check out my course, foodstoragefeast.com. And thanks for all of you people supporting um, not only myself, but the Survival Podcast. Have a great weekend. Take care. I think what I would add is when you're dealing with that kind of abundance, um, certain vegetables don't do well frozen. And if you have vegetables that do well frozen, I think it's probably, you have the freezer space, it's probably the, the best way to preserve a vegetable for future use. If you take green beans and you flash freeze, which means you, you, you take them and you blanch them, and you can look up blanching times, and you blanch them in either steam or hot water, you take them out of that hot water, you chill them down, you spread them on a sheet, you put that sheet in the freezer, that way they don't, they don't freeze into a clump, a gooey clump, right? Until they're all individually frozen. And then you throw them into a bag. As you can do a, a, a vacuum seal bag or just a Ziploc bag and push the air out of it. And then you have them in there. And you can take a handful out at a time then. They will be very close to cooking a fresh green bean. If you don't blanch them, they're nasty, by the way. So flash freezing would be my first choice. Now, zucchini and yellow squash and certainly cucumbers don't flash freeze worth a damn. And cucumbers don't dehydrate, to my knowledge, worth a damn. However, <clears throat> zucchini and yellow squash and many other vegetables, tomatoes, etc., dehydrate fantastically. And I think that my number one recommendation for gardeners, when, when you get to the point where you don't know what to do with all of the stuff that's coming out, and you have to figure out like not only all these different ways to use it, but I also need to do something with it so because it doesn't go to waste, get an Excalibur dehydrator. And, you know, I see people build, building giant solar dehydrators. Unless you have a farm, a, a freaking Excalibur will dehydrate like a horse, man, more than you can imagine. Um, and, you know, chili peppers are fantastic dehydrated in there. Um, green peppers. I still have sweet peppers and jalapeno peppers dehydrated from we lived in freaking Arkansas, and we still use them. Uh, zucchini and yellow squash both dehydrate fantastically if you're going to use them in soups and casseroles and things like that. And they're, it's, it's a great thing to have around. So you're making up a soup. Let's say it's just like a chicken vegetable soup, right? You're doing up a chicken vegetable soup, and it's, 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 it's wintertime. And right at the end, you get a couple handfuls of zucchini and draw, you, don't like, you, you turn it off so it's just hot. And you throw them in there and let them rehydrate. That's all you need to do. And they add something really awesome to a soup like that and they release flavor the same with dehydrated tomato you know, you're making a soup and you add dehydrated tomatoes they put way more tomato flavor into that broth than you would ever get from fresh tomatoes because of the exchange so when you drop a dehydrated vegetable into hot water water rushes in to take the place of the water that was removed but there's an osmotic exchange there and a lot of the components and flavor characteristics of that vegetable are released in a way that's just culinarily different and it's interesting just to like you know try this sometime um, you know get get your dehydrated vegetable of choice heat up some water throw a handful in there and steep it strain the vegetables off and taste the liquid And then, you know, look at the, you know, don't do a lot, just a little bit for an experiment. Then look at the amount of dehydrated vegetable you ended up with, okay? And cut up uh, the same vegetable fresh and put it in the same amount of water and, and boil it for five minutes and then taste that water. The, the water from the boiled vegetables will have a faint taste of, you know, celery or carrot or whatever to it. 
Um, but the stuff from just steeping in the dehydrators will have like a flavor bomb. And so I think, you know, your, your tomatoes, your peppers, your zucchinis, anything that you don't have time to do anything else with, cut it up, throw it on a tray, turn the dehydrator on. When it's done, throw it in a ball jar, put a lid on it, set it on the shelf. If you want to put O2 absorbers in it or desiccants in it or anything like that or vacuum sealer jars, go nuts with it. But in general, if you fully dehydrate vegetables, put them in a jar, stick them on a shelf, they're good to go. Label them and date them so you use the oldest ones first. My thoughts on that. I'd be interested to hear what Erica has to say on this when she comes back, probably I'd say next week or two with her answer to the same question. Uh, next up, this is an important question. It's on the, the what's called the Bitcoin fork. And what's coming uh, around August 1st for holders of Bitcoin and what we should all do about it from Brandon Todd. Hey everyone, this is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com here to answer your question for the expert council. This question comes in from Matthew where he's wondering, how should the Segwit2x rollout affect our Bitcoin investing? I've not bought any yet, but want to get in. Should I wait for things to settle down short term? Should I go for it, take a risk? Or should I wait and see a more long-term strategy? All right, great question again now from Matthew. Uh, so basically, there are two questions here. One, how could Segwit2x affect our Bitcoin and altcoin investing or investments? And two, what I think you should do regarding this. Uh, you know, when it comes to what I think you personally should do uh, with this, of course, I don't know. But I can tell you what I'm thinking about and what I'm doing today. And of course, what I'm doing today can change by tonight based on new information. You know, this cryptocurrency space moves so fast. It's almost like dog or cat years if you've been around for any amount of time. It really seems that way. Sometimes I sit back and think about all the things I need to consider when looking at one of these one of these currencies and realize that you know many times it's only been around for a few months or a few years and it seems like a lifetime of events have taken place, you know, with with the currency. I guess that's just the way it is with these bleeding-edge, paradigm-shifting technologies like Bitcoin and many of these other currencies or platforms. So let's let's take a look at Segwit2x for a minute and evaluate where it stands today. Well, Segwit2x is now locked in uh, via BIP91, which means that enough nodes signaled or voted for implementing it on the network. It does not mean that Segwit is active yet. To achieve this, we need 95% of these nodes to keep signaling through one standard difficulty retargeting time frame. So it looks like we're just about at the end of one of these time frames, <clears throat> excuse me, which is about two weeks, or more precisely, 2016 blocks. This varies because some blocks are found slower or faster than 10 minutes. 10 minutes is just a target for a block time in Bitcoin. You know, that scales depending on hashing power and difficulty. This is why we have a difficulty retargeting period. So, as I understand it, we need to reach 95% of nodes mining Segwit2x blocks within one time period. I believe we will, you know, I believe we will start another, uh, another time period on July 27th, which would be tomorrow. T today is July 26th, uh, that I'm, that I'm answering this response. Uh, so, <clears throat> this would take us to a potential Segwit activation of around August 9th or so. This is confusing because there are multiple sources out there claiming Segwit will activate around mid-August. You know, I'm not sure if this is old data or just outdated articles because, like I said, you know, this stuff changes so fast. It's so hard to write an article or a blog post on any of this stuff because you're constantly going back and making changes or scrapping what you just said or what you said is irrelevant. 
uh, let alone writing a book on it or anything like that. Um, so, you know, I'm not, you know, so I'm not really sure if that's old data or whatever, but, or if I've missed something in my calculations, but, um, in any case, it looks like we will get SegWit activation here in the next few weeks at the latest. If these miners don't back out and we reach 95% consensus of an epoch or period, then SegWit will activate immediately, activate, which will immediately fix transaction malleability as well as other bugs in giving us more capacity for transaction in the short run. Seems like this could trigger a surge in price as it would seem that this event would give Bitcoin more value. Having said all that, <clears throat> let's talk about the 2x part of SegWit 2x. This is the proposed hard fork of 2 megabyte block increase three months later. If we get SegWit activated via SegWit 2x in mid-August, then expect another battle regarding this hard fork of 2 megabytes in the months to come. So about three months after that. But leading up to that, we'd probably see a lot of volatility and uh, just nastiness on Twitter and, and all kinds of things. So... You know, so what I'm basically saying is it looks like you know we'll have uncertainty at least for the next few months with just SegWit2x. Now let's talk about Bitcoin Unlimited and Bitcoin Cash. Both of these options are competing with Bitcoin and would fork via, via hard fork because they both want bigger blocks for what we know is Bitcoin today of one megabyte blocks. Bitcoin Unlimited, or BTU, would do this with an adjustable block size cap over time, giving miners more discretion of how big of blocks they want to accept. And Bitcoin Cash, or BCC, would start with 8 megabyte block size increase. Both of these would require a hard fork because a hard fork is a loosening of the consensus rules, whereas a soft fork, soft fork is a tightening of the consensus rules. The news of Bitcoin Unlimited has died down. Why, I don't know, because they do have over 800 nodes, which seems uh, rather significant. But Bitcoin Cash has been much bigger news with their latest announcement of planning a user-activated hard fork around August 1st. Uh, the good news about both BCU and BCC is that if both or either of these options fork and after August 1st, we have three different things trying to call themselves Bitcoin. Every user that owns and holds their BTC, or Bitcoin as we know it today, you know, if you hold your keys, you'll automatically have the same balance on all three of these chains, or two chains, or, you know, if we get a three-way fork or a two-way fork. Um, so you'll automatically have these on your balances, right? Of course, because they'll, they'll all have a common ancestor. A common ancestor. Of course, this is all relative because I suspect if we have a two or three or more way coin split, the value of each, you know, Bitcoin as we know it today will dramatically be less than what one Bitcoin is worth today. On on July, you know, 26 today, that's around $2,500 for a Bitcoin. So to answer your question in the short term, I have no idea what is a good time to buy or sell if you want some sort of profit, um, you know. And, 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 and this really goes for the long term as well. But what I can say is that I'm still holding Bitcoin today. And I plan to, through this whole drama, you know, full disclosure, I did sell part of my position uh, about a month ago and I'm keeping some in cash as well. I also still hold many of the bigger altcoins as well because I still like their intended purposes and am hopeful they will continue to spread user adoption and thus become more valuable over time in price as well as utility. You know, we could see another panic from a coin split, or we could see liftoff with majority consensus on any of these options. Impossible to tell, really. So 
I try to keep a little skin in each game just in case. You know, the strategy you know, I've had best success with over the years is to buy you know, many small amounts over long periods of time. That way I'm never investing anything I can't afford to lose and doesn't seem so painful when some go south or belly up. Again, I'm not giving investment advice, only telling you what has seemed to work for me so far. When I purchase smaller amounts, I am also less uh, emotional about them and less likely to make drastic, you know, quick, irrational decisions with the whole amount. Maybe I've just fooled myself, I don't know, but it's been working for me. Now, the long story short, I do believe that if we can keep working things out to allow Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dash, and others to scale to more users and merchants then I don't think it's unreasonable to assume a much higher price in 5 to 10 years. I really believe that, and not because you know the Fed or some big head fund manager recently said so in the news articles. I believe this because I've been watching these things overcome and keep growing for a very long time now. I believe this because I understand economics, and I understand true value, and I understand the futility of these central bank, central plan monetary experiments in the long run. Now, Bitcoin and others is is a stand against that, and it's a way out for the people. I cert- it certainly has been for me, as I was able to pay off you know both my wife and my student loans two months ago with one payment from cryptocurrency proceeds. So to sum it up, I could see a big sell-off or a huge price jump in the next few months with all this uncertainty. But I just, but like I just said, I'm still betting Bitcoin will still be here in some form and be worth far more in five to ten years. That's my opinion for what it's worth. Hope this helps, Matthew. Thanks for the question. Um, again, I want to remind everybody: you know, go over to CryptoSkim.com uh, homepage. There'll be a tab there that says TSP Questions. If you click on that and scroll down, the description of this question plus the episode number should be on there, and I'll have uh, any of the supporting information that uh, you know that I can that I that I source to to cr- come up with this response on there. So yeah, again, this is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com signing off. I, I want to add a, a couple things about what's going on right now. So I, I've received the same email several times from Coinbase, and I know other exchanges are doing a similar thing. What Coinbase is going to do is like at 2300 hours on July 31st, they're going to suspend all sale, trade, everything Bitcoin. It's just going to be frozen the way that it is. And they're going to wait for everything to happen. And then they've already stated that when it's all said and done with, they're going to follow the original Bitcoin and whatever changes have been made to it. They're not going to go with Bitcoin Cash or something like that, that they've made that decision they've put down their anchor on it and to be fair to coinbase is being very upfront about it, and they're like if you don't want to do this if you want to have options take your bitcoin out of coinbase and hold it off chain or, or what have you and hold your own keys and then you can do whatever you want after this all happens or if you're worried about the way this is going to work out sell it and go to cash and you can leave your cash in there just you can do whatever you want you can play with your ethereum and your litecoin all you want but we're taking this action to protect our our, our uh, customers. And I think it's probably one of the better actions they can take. However, I received a very similar email from an exchange called Kraken. Now, the thing about Kraken, if you want to try to capitalize on this or whatever, you, you have to get verified with your identity, and it takes some time, and there ain't that much time before uh, the 31st now, is there? What Kraken said is they're going to suspend the same thing Coinbase said with a difference. 
that if the Bitcoin cash fork occurs, that every customer, let's say you had five Bitcoins, will end up with five Bitcoins and five Bitcoin cash. You'll have both. It makes me wonder because I've you know I've, I've been a pretty good fan of, of Coinbase with some you know points where I'm like don't really like that, but you don't like everything anybody does. Like, are they going to do that and keep all the Bitcoin cash, or even this other fork? Like, or are they just that? Are they just doing what they say they're doing? I don't know. I don't really know. I know I have a very small amount of Bitcoin uh, still in my possession. I have some in a, a Jack's wallet. I have a little bit in Coinbase. I went almost all cash with my Bitcoin. Um, quite a while ago, and it was at like 2600 bucks. And I told everybody in this audience that that's what I did coming up on this fork. I'm sure it would go up and down in between, but I see with all of this crap going on, some major dip in Bitcoin. My concern is if the opportunity presents itself to buy Bitcoin super cheap in this, how long will exchanges like Coinbase hold down? on letting you access your cash to buy Bitcoin. A workaround would be to buy something like Ethereum and Coinbase, if that's where you're holding your cash, and send it to an exchange where it can be converted to whatever Bitcoin form you wanted. That's just something to keep in mind, because I've already thought about that. Well, what the hell do I do if Bitcoin drops like 800 bucks in the middle of this shit? But it's kind of clear that, hey, it's going to be the Bitcoin coming out the other end of it, and, and I want to buy it. And, and, it, and, and Coinbase and other exchanges are on this lockdown, um, if it's available anywhere, that would be the way to do it, to do a currency exchange. And that's the thing. I need to look over this weekend. I don't know how people like Shapeshift are going to handle this. Are they going to allow conversions during this? Because Shapeshift is one of the major providers of liquidity in the intercurrency market. So it's interesting. Um, I feel pretty comfortable in cash because every time I think about this, I just go, whatever happens, you know, if Bitcoin's going to be worth $50,000 of Bitcoin or something in five years, and I don't know that it will, and I don't really think that it will, but if it's going to, it's not like you're not going to have, like it's going to happen, like once this is all over and we, and we have a clear platform for Bitcoin, it's going to go to $10,000 in a day. That's not going to happen. We know that's not going to happen. So I just feel like, hey, I'm riding cash right now and, and, You know, I might have to pay some capital gains on it and all, but, you know, it is money I earned, and capital gains taxes are lower than income taxes. I'm just saying. Anyway, let's talk about my segment for today. I want to kind of rehash something that, if you're new to the show, you may have never not only heard me say it originally since it was so long ago, but you may have never even heard me refer back to it, so you may not know this. Before the original, you know, Unaffordable Care Act, Obamacare, passed, It was just an idea, and they were just putting it together, and we didn't know what was in it. Nancy Pelosi hadn't even told us. At first, we had to vote for it so we could see what was in it and, and, and all that nonsense. It wasn't even really done being written yet. And I said, listen, you know, they, they, they've got this one Republican senator. She's going to go along with this. That's all they need. That's all they need. They're going to pass this thing. And they're not going to be able to get what they really want. They're not going to be able to get a public option, which is basically a single-payer option, uh, into this, this time. And that's what they want. So they're going to, to make this disastrous. when they Whatever they, they do, and this, again, before this, before anybody read a word of it, I said, this is going to be disastrous beyond comprehension. Okay? 
And the purpose is to absolutely destroy the, the, the health insurance market so that in the end, it'll be like a game of chess. You sacrifice some pawns here and there, but once you get a checkmate, baby, it's checkmate and there's nowhere to go. And that's what's being set up. Further, about the same time, I said, listen, man, this, this Obama guy is going to get reelected. This is before, I mean, this is the guy's first year of his first term, and I'm like, this, he's going to get reelected, guys. Because he could look out and see the political landscape. He's going to get reelected, and then it's going to be, you know, eight years later, the Republicans are going to take the White House, and they'll probably have everything at that point. Because people are going to be pissed about all this, and there's going to be a, a reaction to it. Because you know it's going to be a disaster, so you know everybody's going to be pissed, and you know what happens when everybody's pissed? They make a change. Okay? And it, we would have a Republican take over in 2016. How could you know that? I just said I know it, right? The other thing I said is this Republican is not going to be anybody. And, and people that listen this long, they know I'm not making, I'm not, I'm not embellishing this at all. This is exactly what I said. It's I actually, when we started to see the rise of Donald Trump, I doubted myself if you were listening at the time because I'm like, this is freaking spooky to be this. I, I'm used to being right. I'm not used to being this specifically right. That this Republican that would rise up would be a strong man Republican, right? And he would be somebody that you could never even think of right now. It wouldn't be any of these people that anybody talk about being president. It would be somebody out of completely out of left field, somebody completely unnamed, someone you would never expect. Along the way, I saw Scott Walker and thought, this guy could be president because of some Mario. And I got fooled myself because he didn't fit the way. I'm like, but he's not a strong man. Doesn't make sense. There's got to be a strong man. And Donald Trump came like, no way, it can't be. And as I started to see the way the country was reacting, I'm like, there he is. There's your strongman Republican out of left field. Now, I said those things. The other thing I said was, it would be this strongman Republican that would bring you government health care. That would bring you the public option, which would essentially be single-payer. Okay? That that's, what this, that's where all this was going. Now, again, I'm talking, I'm talking late 2009, early 2010 is when I'm having these conversations. And some people have called me Spirko Domus over the year and stuff like that. I don't think it's any kind of clairvoyancy. I think it's just basically looking at a pattern and seeing where that pattern, how that pattern is evolving and where that pattern lar largely leads, leads to. So here was the interesting thing, though. When Trump took over, I looked at this and said, wait a minute, he's got a commanding, commanding lead in the House. And he's got a significant advantage in the Senate. Now, I, I still don't think that the Republicans are going to fix this this mess, because a lot of them actually like it. I campaigned against it, but they actually are in love with the government being in control of shit. All politicians on both sides are. They want the government controlling everything. It's more power for them and less freedom for you. That's what they want. That's why they run for office. Most of you need to think about this. Would you really want to be a congressman or a senator or the president of the United States? And most of you, if you honestly look at yourself in the mirror and deeply thought about it, would say no, because you don't want to control somebody else's life. And when you start thinking, well, I would be there for repealing things, you're like... Well, that never happened, so I would end up, and I don't, most human beings who are not psychopaths do not want to control what others do. They don't want that much power and authority. So you only get psychopaths in general in these positions, and they want control. So the Republicans actually want government control 
of the health care market, including health insurance. And remember, one of the biggest deceptions they've made is to convince you that health insurance equals health care. They are two different things. And as long as you continue to believe that they're not, you will never understand what's going on. You'll never. And then the other fundamental you have to realize is for any insurance product to be valid and sustainable, less people have to use it than pay for it. You have to have the majority of people that pay for it never use it or very use very small pieces of it. Most people have to get less back than they put in. That's how every other form of insurance works. Nobody bitches about insuring their house or their car, even though most people don't generally file claims on their house or their car, or if they add it up across their lives, they paid way more in than they get back out. That's how insurance works. It's a risk pool. So when this all happened, I said, even though the Republicans are all for this, and they can't do it, they can't get together and do it, they can't reach across the aisle and do it, they can't do what I said they're going to do. They can't create a, a public option and advance and expand Obamacare. They can't do it. Never happened. And there's enough of them that really do lean toward the small government side to screw it up even if they're willing to do it. And they'll never get the, the Democrats to work with them uh, unless they basically come out and say, we're for saving Obamacare and we've turned our backs on our voters and we're not going to repeal it. As long as it's even, be, even if it's not a repeal, as long as it's marketed as a repeal of Obamacare, not one Democrat will get involved in the process. They will abstain, they will vote no. Right? So how can we get to there? And I'm sure many of you that have followed my prediction about this for over eight years, are wondering, how do we get there? You're watching it. You're watching it. There's two ways this happens. Here's the most likely way forward at the moment. The Republicans will continue to look like they have their hands up their ass so far that they're sucking their thumb from the backside. Okay? They will not get a damn thing done with this. They will completely muff it all the way to the bank. And in the, the midterm elections, they are going to get slaughtered. And they're not going to get slaughtered because all of the people that generally vote for Republicans are going to turn around and vote for Democrats. It's not going to happen. The midterms are much lower voter turnout than the mainstream elections, so follow this. You have the entire House of Representatives up for re-election. Timmy, Tommy, dumbass, my, my, my Republican uh, rep, campaigned on repeal and replace. He did not, he did not deliver. I gave him, and I, we, we gave the senator the same thing. We gave the Senate and the House to them. They promised to do this. Trump promised to do this. And even if I'm not totally pissed at Trump, because I let Trump make me blame the Republican Timmy, Tommy, dumbass, and my senator dick, dick ass, right, okay, those two, I blame them, that are up for re-election. How motivated am I to go to go vote for them? I mean, it's a midterm. I got shit to get done. I'm working my ass off to pay for my health care that I can't afford, that you guys promised to repeal and replace, and I don't have time to go vote for you. Okay. Now, let this, the other side of this sink in. The majority of people that voted for a Democrat in the last, that voted for Hillary Clinton in the last election, hate, seethingly hate Trump. They don't just don't like him, they hate him. 
So let me ask you, in your astute study of humanity, is hate a good motivator? Are people willing to take an action due to hatred? So you're going to have the right that's like, I just don't care anymore. I don't care how much Sean Hannity bangs the drum, it's the most important election in our lifetime. Again, right? I don't care. The average Republican voter, the average uh, independent voter that voted for Trump and the Republicans in this last election, the average working class Democrat in the Rust Belt that went out and voted for Trump and maybe even held their nose to vote Republican for the first time in their life because they thought, we've got to give this a chance. I want this one thing done. And make no mistake about it, the Republicans took over the House and the Senate and Donald Trump got into the White House on the concept of repealing Obamacare because people are miserable with it. So when it doesn't happen, the Democrats take over in 2018. But Trump's still there. He'll veto it. They're not going to have a command. Listen, what they're going to do. They're going to reach out to what's left of the Republicans if they need to. You know, if they need to. Say, hey, wake up call, guys. We have to do this. Or they're going to do it on their own. And if they send Trump a health care bill that he thinks will cover more people, he won't give a shit how it's done. He'll sign it. I think Donald Trump really, I think for Trump, and I'm not saying this is a good moral thing. I think in his mind, his morality is people should have health care. And I think he's actually allowed this whole thing to happen to him, that health care and health insurance are the same damn thing. Well, no, they're not, Donnie. No, they're not. And he will happily, he will happily sign a bill that creates a single-payer or a public option system that the Democrats send him. And you know what he'll say? This is a good bill. It's great. It's really, 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 really good. And it's not everything we wanted, but it will make sure that I keep my promise, which was to make sure that you had really good health coverage and that everybody had it, because that's what I promised. I would have preferred to do it through the repeal of Obamacare, but I believe that this takes us forward, some bullshit like that. And you know what? The man's in his 70s. He's worth billions of dollars. He's been treated like shit, justifiably and unjustifiably, since before he took office. Four years from now, if the American people don't want him as their president anymore, he'll walk away and not give a shit and go, true, go do Trump TV that was probably the original idea in the first place because I don't think he ever thought he would win. I think that's how unlikely it was that it was able for him to win. And some would say, then why did he try so hard and why did he succeed? Because you know what you say whatever about Trump you want? Trump's a business person, and he believes in trying to win. So he went full bore with it, and it worked. And I think he was shocked. I think the Trump campaign was surprised when the results started coming in. It's like, shit, we're going to win Pennsylvania? We're going to win Ohio? We're going to Really? Wisconsin? The, 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 the orange-haired, toupee-wearing fool was right? We, we, we're going to win Wisconsin? Holy shit. What do we do now? What do we do? What do we do? Well, you better start defending yourself against Russia. Russia, what? Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> but I think that's where you're at. So I think that's the most logical path forward. The Republicans completely muff this, and they end up capitulating and 
whatever's left of the Republicans in Congress and Senate, you know, they fight the good fight, but they're not enough. And one or two walk across the line like they did to get the original thing passed. They put it on Trump's desk, he signs it. Here's the other thing that can possibly happen. Understand the real Republican leadership, the old guard, would be happy if they can get political cover to do what the Democrats want to do. Because they want control and power. And some of them are not going to stay, the senators are not going to stay in re-election in the midterms. And some of them are in districts that even what I said won't get them thrown out of office. So they'll keep their job. And remember, if they do lose their job, what do they do? They go get a job as a lobbyist making a million dollars a year. So it ain't like it's a really bad thing. Talk about a golden parachute. And most of them are filthy rich because they've been insider trading for so long anyway. So I think the other option, but this one's less likely, is when they finally give up. They finally give up and say, we're not going to get this done. Then people like John McCain to say, my friends, I think we need to reach out to the other side of the aisle. A, a gang, you know, a gang of eight, gang of six, that type of thing, reaches out to the Democrats and says, hey, we'll work with you. Let's, let's fix this. And if you think about it, with the majority that's in the Senate, you don't need many. I mean, it's, it's one thing when four Republican senators say, I won't vote for this bill, and that prevents it from passing. It's a whole different ball of wax if four senators say, I'm going to go work with the Democrats on this because I'm fed up with it. Now, the House, I, I just, the majority is so extreme. I don't know that you can get enough Republicans to do that. But you can certainly get to a point where they're primed for it after the midterms. And, and, and it may be the case. So I think it could happen before the midterms, but I, I don't see it. I think that the first scenario is most likely, and I don't think the Republicans fix this. And I think even if they do fix it, what will happen is they'll do, like they tried skinny repeal and it didn't work, they'll do something that will actually make it worse. And if the, per, if the person that voted for a Republican on repeal and replace gets nothing done, they're going to be pissed. And if their insurance goes up, they're going to be pissed. But if the Republicans do something and their insurance goes up, which it will, because anything they do is not going to work quickly enough to prevent that anyway, they're going to be immensely pissed. Dare I say they might even feel hatred. And they might actually show up to vote for the other guy just to send a point because they're pissed. And I don't, again, I don't think any of the Limbaugh's and the Hannity's and whatever can stop the blowback because Republicans have, have believed this was going to happen for so long when they come to ground with the idea that it's not going to happen. And even if they had passed what they were trying to pass, your insurance is still going to go up. It doesn't fix the problem. It basically creates a bailout for the insurance companies that are being screwed by Obamacare to keep them in the pools longer. I mean, there's... there's oh. Now, if you want to know how I would fix this, I could pass a one-page piece of legislation that would fix this. Number one, health insurance from this point forward is only to be provided for catastrophic needs. And then you define catastrophic. By a certain dollar amount. It's pretty high. Right? You go to the doctor because your nose is bleeding and he comes in and he sees you and gives you a lollipop and you go on your way. You pay him. And you piss off and that's it. 
So health insurance is for catastrophic needs only. Okay? Second line, or second piece. All medical providers, drug companies, etc., device providers, everybody that does anything in the medical industry that is paid for by insurance shall charge insurance companies and groups the same as they charge any individual. This is not true pricing controls because it doesn't say what the number has to be. But you cannot give a lower price to the insurance provider than you give to the private individual. And that would fix 90% of your problems right there. Because you'd be able to go to the doctor and get a prescription for a couple of bottles of pills and it would cost you $100. Bucks. And if you don't think it's worth $100, bucks, you're not that sick. But some people don't have money. Whatever. You know, there's a lot of shit that I wanted in my life that before I had money, I didn't get to have it. We need life-saving care. And no one in this country is denied life-saving care. And if you doubt that, go to an ER on a Saturday night and watch all the people without insurance and no money get life-saving care. And would it be perfect? No. But again, I never promised perfect. I'm just telling you how to make it better. And then once that was flushed out, Then you could revisit, well, now we can allow providers of insurance policies to provide maybe a little bit more coverage. A little bit more tailor-made to the individual, but open up full competition. But right now, the, 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 the medical companies, the pharmaceutical companies, the hospitals, the doctors, uh, the equipment manufacturers, all of this, they have a stranglehold on the whole industry. And it's all because insurance Government and private is a cash cow. You would not be able to sell Levitra for $500 for a one-month supply to a diabetic if there was no insurance to pay $500 for it. If nobody got that $500 paid for by insurance, Levitra would be $50 a month at the most. But because they can bill an insurance provider and then actually charge them less than they charge you if you have to pay out of pocket, they create an artificial inflation of the cost of this stuff. But that would be the truth, and I don't think the American people are ready for it yet. So they're going to throw tantrums, they're going to hand things back over to the Democrats, and Donald Trump is going to give you a public option or a single-payer system. Or a massively expanded Obamacare that he will claim is a you know some sort of victory. I reached out across I told you I was a deal maker, blah 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 blah. Bullshit. But remember, Jack Spierko, the redneck hippie duck farmer, told you all this was going to happen all the way back in two thousand nine. Some of you listening, you weren't old enough to drink a beer yet. Some of you listening, you're not old enough technically to drink a beer yet. But you get my point. It was quite a while ago. So that's why I think you should believe me that this is the most likely way forward. Now, what will happen, what will I say, if the Republicans come out with a good repeal bill? What I will say is, holy shit. Um, but don't you bet on it. Don't you bet on it. I think you're more likely to go down to the store today, pick up a six-pack, on the way out, find a scratch-off ticket that somebody dropped on the ground, stuck to your foot, that says you won $500 on it, the guy scratched it off and threw it away anyway. It could happen, but, all right? Anyway, I wish I could end on a higher up note for you, but that's what's coming, and it's clear to me now that's what's coming. I've been watching this stuff for the last couple of weeks going, here it is, here it is, here it is. This is it. Because I'm telling you, man, hatred is a strong motivator. The Democrats are going to show up in droves 
they're going to show up in droves in 2018. And a lot of Republicans are just going to go, I don't have time for that shit. I have to work for pay for this shit that you promised to repeal that you didn't. Watch. All right, so hey, you like this show? You like the work I do? You like bringing the council together, all the stuff, all the knowledge we bring you? Then one of the things you want to do is help support this show. And one of the ways you can do that that is so super simple is to do your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, you can always see our latest reviewed items. And you can see a link there to do your online shopping over at Amazon.com. And as long as you're doing your shopping through tspaz.com, you help support the show. And that now applies to everybody in the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. All of you guys can shop through tspaz.com and help support the show and the work that we do. Anyway, um, I have a cool product for you guys today. It's actually a, 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 an encore item that I'm bringing back from last year. It's really freaking cool. It's the Cable Matters 6 Outlet Wall Mount Surge Protector. It really just basically expands your little two-plug outlet into a six-plug outlet. Basically, you take a screw out, you plug it in, you put a screw back in. Anybody can install it, even me. It gives you six regular outlets, and it also gives you two USB ports. The USB ports are not like the most like super fast ports out there. They're 2.4 amps, so they're not 3.1s, but they're not snails either. They'll charge your devices pretty quick, and you got your six ports. I like this so much because, well, one, my wife's real big into making the house smell good, which I don't mind. The way she does it are these little Febreze things that she plugs into the outlets, and they always take up both plugs. So if there's one on the little outlet behind the countertop where I cook and do my cooking, and I want to pull my spice grinder out and plug it in, there's a freaking womany, smelly thing in the way. And if I pull it out and set it on the counter and it falls over, it runs smelly, gooey stuff all over. I just want a plug. So it just by having more plugs, it makes me happy. Um, and, you know, I like to use my power failure lights. Well, they take up two spaces, too. So you still have four with either one of those going on. So you can still plug other stuff in. Plus, like, let's say I'm listening to music and I got my phone with me and I'm cooking in the kitchen. And uh, I look at the phone and it's got like 13% power. I just plug it right in there. It's got its own little USB port, and I can keep rocking out and cooking out. It's great. Um, another thing I like about them, if you have them like in a hallway or something, I'd never put one of these in my bedroom. It's got a little light on it that basically says it's on and it's working. And it's, it's, it's not super bright, but it's bright enough to be like a low-level nightlight. So it's like a free little extra nightlight thing. If you don't want that, I'm sure you can put some little black paint over it or something like that. And then on top of it all, the whole thing's a surge protector. So, I mean, it's just... A great way, and instead of doing something like a power strip or whatever, it fits flat flush against the wall. It basically, again, just makes your your your, your duplex outlet into a, a, a sixplex. You know, you go from a duplex to a quad to a six. And you know what? They're affordable, too. They're about uh, 17 bucks. And uh, free shipping on Amazon Prime. Check it out. So again, it's the Cable Matters 6 Outlet Wall Mount Surge Protector. If you want power, you also want, what's the old thing? More power. And while it's not more raw power, it's more access to power. That's what everybody needs in their life, more access to power. Uh, next up, let's take a look at uh, our YouTube channel of the day. And this is one I bet a lot of you know, and I had it kind of on my list of uh, YouTube channels that I like that I was eventually going to pepper in. But this comes in from Vinny today. He says, uh, my favorite weapons channel, the Slingshots uh, channel, which I can't ever think of how to say the guy's name. I think it's like Yurog Sprav, 
right? I think it's his name. He's a huge German dude that makes like slingshots out of everything. I mean, this guy's like, yeah, he makes some slingshots and shoots some ball bearings and stuff, but like freaking slingshots shooting freaking darts and swords and I ain't seen it yet, but he's probably got one that shoots a cannonball or some shit. I mean, the guy, deadly weapons. It, this is proof that like if you make guns illegal, people are still going to make shit that shoots shits that kill shit, man. And he's freaking funny and he's cool. Again, it's called the Slingshot Channel. Jurog Sprav. Somebody could tell me if that's the right way or wrong way to say his name. Uh, I can, He'll say it once in a while. I'm like, I don't know what he said. I, I don't know half of what he says, but I know enough to get it because he's a real thick accent. And he builds some cool, cool stuff again, guys. The Slingshot Channel, really cool channel, currently has 1.8 million subscribers. In fact, 1,829,806 subscribers as of right now. True success story on YouTube, The Slingshot Channel. Check it out if you haven't already. I bet most of you are already subscribers to this one. And that brings us up to our song of the day today. John Adam has this song picked out. I think a listener actually asked me to play it. And I, I, If you ask me to play a song, I don't commit to or not to. I just forward it to John let him decide if he wants to put it into the mix. Um, but this is actually a song. He said, uh, when he sent me this, no cryptic meaning or anything, just a cool song by a cool group. It's called Born and Raised in Black and White by the Highwaymen. And the Highwaymen, of course, was a super group in, in country music. Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, uh, Wellen Jennings, I think, was the, 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 the four that, that were put together there. Um, just fantastic music overall. But this song actually has a place in, in my past. It's kind of interesting how you grab on to certain bits of music. Uh, this actually goes back, and there were quite a few different versions of this song. Uh, the Highwaymen did it. Uh, I know Mark Colley did it. That's actually a pretty hard version to find. You can't find it, but it's a little bit difficult. And um, when I was in the Army in the 90s, early 90s, I had a really, really good friend named Brad. And we served together in Panama, and uh, we were like brothers. I, I t on some level, we still are like brothers today, but we just don't see each other as much anymore, even though we're not that far apart. Um And we used to hang out at this bar at the Fort Clayton NCO Club, third floor, and it was a country bar. And uh, you know, so 90% of what was played was country. And this song was played frequently up there. And we kind of eventually kind of as as kind of uh, you know, military brothers grabbed onto this song as a song that really talked about the two of us. Now in this song, the you know, the the brother born in black ends up, you know, in in prison being put to death for killing someone. So it wasn't to the extreme, and the and the the, the the brother born in white grows up and be a preacher man. Well, Brad wasn't about to be no preacher man, and he had plenty of uh, uh, you know faults of his own and things like that. But it, it kind of rung rung true for us. Like Brad was a kid that grew up. He tried to do everything to please his parents. He studied hard. He got good grades. He did everything the way he was supposed to do. And I grew up as a little ruffian man. A lot of you don't even know what the hell that word means, but like. I guess you'd call it today maybe a punk, like a, like a little punk kid, you know. I grew up playing with guns. Um, I grew up getting in fights. I never give, gave really a damn. By the time I was in like fifth grade, I didn't care what my grades were as long as they were good enough to get me to the next one so I could get done with it, and I just wanted to be done with it. I had no respect for authority. You know, and I think most people would have looked at me when I was 17, I joined the Army, and said... This this guy's going to have a rough future. He's probably going to end up in jail, at least. And they would have looked at Brad, and they would have said, hey, this kid's got it going on. 
You know, he's going to go out and he's going to he's going to do big things. And, and I'm sad to tell you that my friend today is, you know, he's doing okay with his career, I guess, but he battles depression. He's divorced twice. He's miserable. He spent a lot of his life kind of on the edge of suicide. Um, he's been on multiple, uh, you know, psychotropic medications, and he's pretty unhappy with his life right now. And you guys know my life, so I'm not bragging or nothing. I say I'm pretty, pretty happy with my life right now. And I wonder sometimes when we look at kids and we say, like, this is the good kid and this is the bad kid. And I'm not talking about the chameleon Eddie Haskell type thing, you know, where Eddie seemed like such a nice boy, but he was really the one causing all the problems and leave it to Bieber saga. I'm talking about legitimately. When you can look and go, like, this is the good kid and this is the so-and-so bad kid. If many times, like, society's actually creating, like, these totally unreasonable expectations, and that's why we end up with these people that seem like they have everything going for them, ending up miserable or killing themselves. And the the people that you look at and think, man, they're never going to really be anything. They're probably going to end up in jail or something. And they're really not that bad a person. They just don't give a shit what you think. Um, ends up being dramatically successful and happy. And it, is society really hurting our children by setting an unreasonable expectation that everybody's supposed to conform to what we see as the white side of life as children. And anybody that ventures into what we would call the black side, which I would really call the gray side, and maybe not even gray, just alternative, different, choose not to participate in the mass delusion of society, that's why they end up happy. John, great choice of a song, so much for no cryptic meaning. With that, I hope you guys enjoyed the shows this week, and I hope you, uh, I hope you got a lot out of today's show. I think there's a lot of information and wisdom in today's show. And I hope you're taking the steps in your life to make your life better no matter what comes. Because like I said in my segment today, I think we, you know, we're heading headlong into this basically a government takeover of healthcare, and that's not going to be a good thing. But what I've tried to teach from the very beginning here is they're going to do what they're going to do, and you're not going to change it. But what you do have control over is your own life. You have your own choices to make. Guys, um, when I come back on Monday, it will be uh, the 31st, I think. Is that right? The 31st? It will be the 31st. It will be the last day of the, of the month of July. The next day will be the first day of August. We're heading to fall. We're closer to fall than we are to spring right now. I know it's hard to believe with as hot as it is. First day of fall is September 21st. First day of spring was March 21st. We're heading to fall. We'll be heading to winter. It will be, it will be the holiday season. We'll be talking about little kids dressing up in their in their costumes and going out to get candy and making turkeys and Christmas before you know it. Because time keeps marching on. Time keeps marching on. Time keeps marching on. Get out there, kick ass, and take names. And whether you were born and raised in black or white. It's up to you to decide what to do with it with the rest of your life. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
pray for rain That's where we came from Two boys playing in the burning sun One with books, one with guns Mama calls, but just one comes The other one runs With the Christian sense of wrong and right We were born and raised in black and white One learned to pray, one learned to fight We were born and raised in black and white We were born and raised in black and white Mother took to the gospel road Spent his whole life saving souls When he looked at me, his blood ran cold He didn't even try I had no dreams, I had no plans But a gun felt good in my right hand The warden asked, how come you kill that man? I said, I don't know why Welcome home, said the hot Others quietly pray for 